We're going to Matthew chapter 18. If you didn't get sermon notes, the Esther's going to walk through and share those with you. There was a time in my life that I dreamed I could go out and sing the way you guys do or play an instrument like you two girls do. In fact, I even took lessons. Our church has heard the story before, but when I was in junior high, my dad swapped two tires because he owned a garage for music lessons. The only music instrument they had in our community was accordion. And after my second week of lessons, the guy took the tires back and said, take them back, Larry, it's worthless. The kid has no gift, no talent. Is there anything wrong with wanting to achieve greatness? To come to a point where you could use a skill set or you could make a name for yourself, Blake, you have no idea how your testimony fits with this this morning, that sometimes it's in our pride, Sometimes it's not a pride thing, but it's just, I want to do something great. I want to do something remarkable. Some of us have those desires. We, we did it with, you know, a desire musically. Some of us say, I want to do something unusual with sports. I want to do something with my job, my career. And we, we have this goal at times to do something, something that's special. That's what's happening in Matthew chapter 18. If you look at the first couple of verses, you have in this text that all of a sudden the disciples are saying, Lord, we, we want to know about greatness. In fact, when we get to heaven, which one of us is, are you going to pat on the back the most? Which one of us will be the greatest in heaven? Now, understand the setting of Matthew 18. They have had some experiences already that made them think about doing great things. They've gone out and they cast out demons. We haven't typically done that. They went out preaching. They were casting out demons. They were outshining the rabbis and the other leaders of that area. In fact, when Jesus afterwards says, hey, I have a quiz for you. Who do you think that I am? It's Peter that speaks up and says, you are the son of God. You are the Messiah. And Jesus responds and he says, you answer that one right. You hit it on the head. In fact, upon this rock, I'll build my church. And Peter, I'm going to give you the gates, uh, the keys of the kingdom. You know, and so he's, he's got a little bit of like, wow, this is kind of cool. I got the right answers. Just the chapter before, which was just a few days before the account of Matthew 18, three of them had seen Jesus in their glory, in his glory up on the Mount of Transfiguration. And they're thinking now, wow, this is great. This is fabulous. And we've, we've, nobody else on earth has seen something like this. And we are really privileged. And then Jesus, in the midst of all this, says, by the way, when I go to Jerusalem, I'm going to die. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be killed, literally is what he says. I'm going to be killed by individuals. So that got the guys thinking. They've seen Jesus in their glory. Jesus is pre having us go out and preach about his kingdom. And here he, he's talking about he's dying, which means his kingdom must be coming at any moment. And when he st brings in this kingdom, surely, surely then, that means that one of us is going to get the top seat or seats, several of us at the kingdom. Who's it going to be? Which one of us is going to be the greatest? Which one of us preached the best message? <laughs> Which one of us gave the right answers? And so they're walking along as the story is unfolding. They're walking along, headed towards Capernaum, which is a distance, and they have an argument among themselves, according to Mark chapter 9. The argument amongst themselves is, who is the greatest? And they're pointing out, I'm sure in this argument, some things like, hey, I cast out more demons than you did. Maybe the conversation went, you know, hey, remember, we were on the mountain, you guys were down below, you guys couldn't even cast out that demon out of the boy, we had to come down with Jesus and we had to help you out. Maybe Peter is saying, you know, um, I was seeing him in his glory as well, I gave the right answer, surely I should be the greatest. Well, maybe on their way to Capernaum, which is the home of, 
of Matthew, the tax collector, he might be saying to the rest of them, hey, I gave up all kinds of things. I gave up career. I was working for the government. I gave up pension programs. You guys just gave up going after a few fish. And I sacrificed the most. They could be giving all kinds of answers. Maybe they're comparing how long they've been following Jesus. But they have this argument amongst themselves, who's the greatest? And the problem that I see in the text, which you and you would see it obviously as well, is Jesus has said, I'm going to be killed. And there is no pity, there is no attention given to Jesus. It's all about, what do I get out of this? What, who, who's going to you know, notice me? There's no sympathy, there's no empathy for Jesus. It's just, well, if you're going to die, that's okay, because you're going to bring in a kingdom and... Who's going to be the greatest? Jesus' response in Matthew 18 is one of the most impacting, revolutionizing passages of teaching that he's done and in that period, as well as for us to study for just a few moments. Jesus tells them what is greatness. Jesus describes to them, you know, you want, you want to talk about greatness. It's not your theological answers. It's not the number of demons you cast out. It's not the number of miracles that you do. It's not the things that you produce. You want real greatness. You want to know what I'm going to recognize. And he pulls a child up. In the text it says he brought a child to himself. You compare the three different gospels, the synoptics, and the child is young enough to be a lap child. He pulls the child on his lap. And he uses the child to illustrate what is true greatness in the eyes of Jesus Christ. And it's very simple. Very simple is, do you want to be great? Then you need to become as humble as a child, according to what Jesus said. Look at Matthew 18. Jesus goes on, he calls the little child unto him. Verse 3, verily, truly, I say to you, except you be converted and become as a little child, you shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus defines what true humility is by using a child. You know, and you and I can understand this because small children, lap children, they're totally dependent. They're not individuals that go out and say, hey, look what I have done for a career, not at age three and four. Okay, there are individuals that, that are totally dependent upon parents. Oh yes, they say those moments, that I can do it for myself, I can do it myself, I can do it myself. But they can't. They can insist they can tie their shoe, something so simple, but they can't. Until they get a little bit older and get experience. They can feed themselves, but sometimes it's the big mess afterwards, right? The point is they're totally dependent. They've got nothing to go out in public and say, look what I have achieved, vote for me. Not a child. And in those days, in that area, that, that society, children were really looked down upon. They were the traditional, children are to be... Right? In fact, in that culture, you didn't even have your kids at your tables if you were in your Greek and Roman settings until they were adopted into your family. You would kind of put them off with the servants. And they were on levels of servants, if you read in Galatians chapter 4 in text. So what you have is Jesus saying to them, you need to come to a point, folk, where you need to humble yourself and to say, when I stand before God, I am but a child. I am just, I've got nothing. I am nothing. I am totally dependent. I can't get to heaven by my own goodness, by my own good deeds. In fact, Jesus makes it very clear, you have got to be converted by somebody else. 
This idea of being great in the eyes of Christ, this idea of getting into heaven, is not by you and I accomplishing something, by you and I achieving something, by you and I producing something as humble as a child to say, I've got nothing. I am totally dependent upon Jesus Christ to get me to heaven. I am totally dependent upon him to take care of my needs because I am but a babe. And on top of just being a babe, I'm a sinful babe. I am totally needy. And by the way, it doesn't stop when we get saved. Beyond salvation, what do we need to do? We need to be trusting. We need to be relying. We need to have humility as a child and stop thinking, God owes me because I go to church. God owes me because I've got a degree. God needs to favor me because I'm doing the good works. I'm living the Christian life and fitting in the family scenario. Humility as a child that says, I am nothing. I've got nothing. I am totally dependent upon Jesus Christ. That's what he talks about. It's like that story that many of you have heard already. Where the house is burning and the flames are shooting up through and the dad sees his boy in the bedroom of the upstairs and says, jump, son, jump. I'll catch you. And the boy says, I can't see you. I can't see you. The smoke is too thick. And dad says, I can see you. And that's all that counts. And that's true. You and I don't need to see the end. We just need to be humble enough to trust God. And to rely upon him. There's a true story that comes about a two-year-old little boy. Massachusetts General Hospital. Two-year-old is diagnosed with a serious illness of leukemia. They have to start treatments. The little boy goes in for the different treatments. He's gotten very close to the doctor over the weeks that has been treating him. Dr. Truman. And Dr. Truman, as he wrote about the account years later, talked about how they took care of this little boy. And they went, the boy caught their heart, their attention. And they really poured their heart into this little boy, trying to help him out, his family out. And the little boy, despite the fact that every time we went in, there was the poking with the needles. There was all the stuff that went on with the doctor's office that most of the kids were terrified. He would go in and he would typically run into the office. He would whimper with the shots and have difficulty. But... His mom kept telling him, Dr. Truman is trying to help you. They love you. This is their way of trying to help you out. And the nurses were gracious. And so the doctor visits were kind of an up at times because they would give him a little bit of a strength and, and help as he's going through his illness. And so they decided that at one time after several months, they have to do a spinal tap. A spinal tap is painful, period. But now on this three-and-a-half-year-old, they need to do the spinal tap. They talked about it, and Dr. Truman says, I know it's going to hurt, but I do this because I love you. I'm trying to help you out. And so they got the little boy down, and it took three nurses to hold him down. They did the spinal tap. The kid is crying. This David is weeping. He is crying. But when it's all over, he turned his head, and he says, Dr. Truman, thank you for loving me. Why? The humility of a child that looks and says, this is good for me. I am trusting in those who are caring for me like God God the Father. And with humility, it's not about me, it's about Him, and I need to trust Him and humble myself that it's not me, it's Him. Jesus goes on, and He says, you want greatness in heaven? Start with humility. Number two, then to be great, you need to be willing to serve. Serve the way Christ did. Look at the text. Look what He says in verse 5. And whoso shall receive one such little one in my name receives me. What's he mean by that? 
If we start dissecting the word, the word received has the idea of welcoming somebody, bringing them into your home. When they come into your house, you make them feel comfortable. You make them feel welcome. You take care of their needs. You try to provide for them. It, just for a meal, you, you get them water. You get them the food. You take care of them. That's what he says receiving is. And in this passage, he says, you got to do it in my name. If you receive somebody, you take care of their names, in their, their needs, in my name, it has two possibilities here. To do this in the name of Jesus Christ is, you are treating them the way Christ would treat them, or you are treating them as if they were Christ. Either way, you're extending yourself, you're putting yourself into serving that individual, helping them out. Now, this is an act of humility. This is an act of service. And he says very clearly, one of the little ones. Who's he talking about here? Who, when he says one of the little ones that we're supposed to receive, could it be the little children? Probably. Could he be expanding it more that he's talking about little ones in the faith, little ones in the society? No doubt in my mind that what he's talking about is people who are often overlooked. People who are often unable to do anything in return. It is easy for you and me to receive, to serve others who will serve us back. But he makes it clear, he says, hey, there's some people who need to be served who aren't mature yet, who aren't contributing yet. They haven't risen to the point where they are old enough in society, old enough in, in their Christian life to be able to give back. You need to serve them. This is a challenge for you and me when we start thinking about what this means. It means for you and I that we don't overlook the widows. It means that we don't overlook the orphans. We don't overlook the sick and the poor. It means that we are willing to minister to the kids. It means that what we do is we realize that people have value who may not be of our culture, like Jesus did with the Samaritans. We extend ourselves where we forgive somebody who doesn't deserve the forgiveness. But Christ forgave them, so we ought to. It means that we do the lowly tasks of washing somebody's feet. That may not be recognized, may not be noticed, but we do the lowliest deeds for serving somebody. That's the greatness in the kingdom. The greatest in the kingdom isn't about numbers. The greatness in the kingdom isn't about you know, our skill sets. The greatness in the kingdom is who did we serve? Did we serve? Did we put ourselves out for somebody else? Did we do what, G, what James writes is the essence of pure religion? Visiting the widows and the orphans. And here it's tough. Because those rest homes, they stink. Going to visit those folk at times, that's just, we're just too busy. Helping out the elderly. Well, elderly, they do old people things. And yet Jesus says, this, this is greatness. Greatness is serving, not being served. Greatness is going, going out of your way for somebody else, not insisting they go out of their way for you. Humility. Service. That's pursuing Christ. This is the essence of the believer's life. Then what he gives us is, the last thought here about how to have greatness in your life, you got to be ever so careful. Oh, so careful you don't harm the little ones. Look what he does in the text. This is the bulk of it, he says, but whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, 
It were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck, that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must needs be that those offenses come. That happens. But woe to the man by whom the offense comes. Wherefore, if your hand, your foot offend you, cut them off. Cast them from you. It is better for you to enter into life halt, maimed, rather than having two hands and two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. And if your eye offend you, pluck it out. Cast it from thee. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell. This is really serious, rankling words he's saying. He's calling for drastic change in his audience's life. He goes on, take heed. This is is his context. All those other things are in between. Being careful, you don't offend. And verse 10, take heed that you despise not one of those little ones. For I say unto you that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven. For the Son of Man came to save that which was lost. How think ye? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them go astray, does he not leave the ninety and nine and go into the mountain seeks that which has gone astray? And if so be that he finds it, verily I say unto you, he's going to rejoice more of that sheep than of the ninety and nine which went not astray. Even so, it is not the will of our Father which is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Moreover, if your brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he hear thee, you have gained a brother. But if he will not hear you, Take with you one or two more that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen and publican. This is greatness. How do all those verses combine together? Oh, it's so clear. It's so simple. Watch. He's giving a strong warning to his disciples. Do not, do not hurt the little ones in the faith. Do not stumble them. Do not offend means to trip them up. To cause them to fall. It, it's, it's the word that is used in Romans that if somebody who has a lifestyle in the past where they were worshiping at the temples and they were getting the meat that was given at the temple and they bought it there and they see you later on eating that meat that was worshipped, that was given and sacrificed to a false god and they get confused because they haven't grown up enough in the faith. And they get confused and they want to go back and say, well, then I guess that temple worship of that idol is okay because you're eating that meat that was given to that. He said, then you shouldn't eat that meat. You, you got to be very careful. You do not stumble somebody. You do not offend the little ones. Let's bring it to modern day. Somebody who has a struggle with alcoholism. You don't with that person who is still struggling to try to make sure they don't go back into that. You don't say, I'm going to take you to a restaurant and take them to a place where they're serving alcohol and you, you are surrounded by it and they get tempted to go back in. You don't put them in a stumbling situation. Can we expand it a little bit more? Your parents want your kids to be patient. You want your kids to show grace to others. You want your kids not to have a violent temper or to get angry with their siblings. Then you don't stumble your kids by doing it yourself. You don't turn around and say, hey kids, you need to be under self-control. And then in a moment, we were at the hospital yesterday visiting somebody in the afternoon who was at the hospital. This woman, oh my lands, she was raking this poor three or four-year-old over, over the coals because the child had done something childish. And she stood there yelling at her child in the foyer of the hospital. And she started, I am so tired of you. And it's like, wowzy. 
lousy, an adult tantrum in the middle of the hospital. I'm thinking, somebody give her a shot. Do something. (laughs) Can you expect anything less of her child to do the same thing? He's saying in this text, be careful. Do not despise is your second command. The despise is the idea of looking down on somebody. The context of the story, do you know what happened? Just you compare your Gospels. James and John had told that other guy who was casting out demons, you got to stop because you're not one of us. You're not with our group. You don't go to our church. You can't serve as good as we can. That's despising somebody. That's putting somebody down. And he says, that's got to stop. Greatness, greatness in heaven is an individual who doesn't harm somebody this way. You don't stumble people. You don't despise individuals. We, we dare not think down upon believers or somebody who comes to our service because they don't dress as nice as we dressed. We, we don't dare to speak harshly of the elderly because, like I said, they do old people things. We, we, don't, we don't despise the kids because they aren't as mannerly as we are. We, we don't look down and say, okay, they're a visitor. I'll just ignore them. I'll just, I'll just spend no time because I really don't know them. No, we're supposed to be serving. And we don't harm. We don't hurt somebody. We don't stumble somebody by a lack of friendliness. But you don't understand. I got to get out of here so I can be the first one at Golden Corral. I'm going to work so that you are, te- you are growing in faith today. Okay? <laughs> Not get there. The whole idea is... What we do is we need to be careful how we live. Do you understand where this, where this challenges you and me? i got to be careful of the example I set in my home. i got to be careful of how I deal with individuals at a counter, in a store. And I'm irritated and I'm upset because the clerk didn't know how to give change. Well, that's so common anymore, but the clerk didn't know how to give change, and something is, you know, or you're waiting in line, and we're really irritated because we have to wait for two other customers, and I don't know about you, but about this time, they always have to do a price check. And now I'm really frustrated, and so what happens if I walk up, blow my top, yell, scream, carry on, and then say, oh, by the way, here's a gospel tract. Right? We don't hurt We don't stumble. We don't say to our kids, you need to love Jesus, you need to love Jesus. Then we come up with every excuse why not to go to church. Then we wonder why our kids are going to get over and don't want to go to church. You don't hurt, you don't stumble. You don't don't at home blow your top towards your spouse. And then turn around and say, your kids have got to get along better. You don't hurt, you don't stumble. That's greatness. Is it easy? (laughs) Are you kidding? It's hard to be consistent in the Christian life. Amen? It's difficult. By the way, the rest of this chapter gives you all the reasons why you better be careful. He says in this text, he gives warnings. He says, if you stumble and hurt others, you can suffer serious judgment. As if you are better off if you are thrown in a lake with a millstone. What he's talking about is this is non-Christian conduct. To be inconsistent. To be stumbling others. This is not Christ-like. You should examine your heart if that's the case. Whether or not you're in the faith. And he's saying there's severe judgment for those who hurt. Those who stumble. He goes on and he says, hey, by the way, 
When you stumble and you hurt somebody who's little in the faith, who's young in age or both or either, he says, you better understand, this is going against the work of God. God himself has angels assigned to help those people out. God himself is working to bring them to salvation. He doesn't want any to perish. He'll even go after the one that's gone astray to get him back. He is so concerned about people following him. And you're, you're putting roadblocks in their way? You're going contrary to what God says, what God is doing. You're opposing the work of God. And he says, and if that's the case, you can be kicked out of the world's greatest institution, the local church. And ought to be, as he goes on, if there's no change. This is a serious passage of you and I considering what is greatness. Achieving some type of greatness is basically coming to this point. It's you and I rethinking and saying, what does Jesus consider to be great? Money? Position? Political success? Being able to wow people with our skill set? Is greatness being given the authority as a CEO? Is greatness having the nicest car, the biggest bank account? Is that greatness? Not by Jesus' standard. Those things, and there's, there's nothing evil and wrong with those things as long as we understand what is important in life. Real greatness in the mind of Christ is what? It's humility. Humbling ourselves before God. Real greatness in the mind of Christ is serving God's people like Jesus served. Real greatness in the mind of Christ is living in such a way that you are careful that if somebody followed you around, they would be drawn closer to Christ because of the example you set. You don't stumble, you don't hurt. That's greatness. Greatness in the eyes of Christ. I want to think I'm there. You want to think you're there, but are we? Truly before Jesus Christ. The disciples thought they were there. They said, which one of us has done the best? And he has to give them an eye opener and say, wait a minute. You need to really check your heart. You really check your lives. You need to really consider, what are you doing when it comes to being like a little child and your, and your acts towards those little ones in the faith. <laughs> we can talk about it. We can sing about it. But will we do it? Will we consider making the changes that the disciples needed to make to achieve real greatness?